12 to 15, you may notice that we're skipping some verses. That's because I want to, before Memorial Day, I want to do a three-part series in this text on one anothering. We'll sort of look at the text as a whole this morning. Next week, look uh, look at what it looks like to confront sin in one another. And then the third installment, look at the godly use of our words with one another. So our passage is 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 15. The Apostle Paul writing, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all them. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Have you ever driven by a gorgeous mansion and felt a twinge of envy? It would be so cool to live in such a huge, majestic, beautiful place. I have when I wasn't in my right mind. Because I already live in a more lovely place as a follower of Jesus. I live in his church, the temple of the living God, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Far more beautiful, far more valuable than the nicest mansion you could find in the D.C. area is living in the church of Jesus Christ. And true confessions, beloved, I don't value what it means to live in the church as I should. I know there's too much of an individual in me. And so to help us appreciate the supreme value of having home ultimately be in this gathering of Christ's followers we call the church, let's Think of the church as a mansion. And you could speak of any mansion in terms of its physical structure and its beautiful interior. That's the model, that's the paradigm we will use to unpack this text to the end that we might move from this place of individualism that I know plagues my heart to esteeming with supreme value what it means to live in the church. So first of all, the physical structure. I'm going to tease out a number of aspects of the physical structure. First of all, the cost of the building. We all know it costs millions and millions of dollars to build a mansion. How often do you consider what it costs to put you into the church of Jesus Christ? If you go back to verse 9 in the chapter, you get the answer to that question where Paul writes, we were not destined for wrath, but for salvation. 
The cost to being saved and belonging to Jesus and living in his church is nothing less than the fact that the wrath due your sins was thrown into the sinless body of Jesus. The eternal destruction that my sins earned, that your sins earned in the face of a holy God, Jesus suffered. It is impossible to imagine it. That was the cost of getting us in this thing we call the church. He paid a cost of inestimable value. His life, his safety, his welfare, the oneness with his father, his purity for Jesus to know sin on the cross, it's unthinkable. That's the price. And if that's true, it means that as we come into the church and begin to do relationship, we need to start with what it was I deserved. I deserved judgment. I have received mercy. Therefore, my relationships will be clothed in what? Grace. I'm never going to treat you on the basis of what you deserve. God hasn't given it to me. He flung it into the precious body of his son. That's the cost of the building. Secondly, the threat to the building. You may remember in our study of Thessalonica that there was persecution immediately that came on the followers of Jesus in that city. It was an unsafe place to follow Jesus. Maybe muggings. They might kidnap your children. They might lose your job for following Jesus. Your very life might be threatened. And when you're at war, how do you value your fellow soldiers? They're your greatest asset. You, you can't get along without them. You absolutely need your fellow soldiers in this struggle to survive. So this text assumes we really belong to each other. It assumes we need each other. It assumes what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, that the members of Christ's body have the same care for each other. Me caring for you is like me caring for myself because we belong to each other. And so he wants, when one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all members rejoice. Now, this is probably too big a setting for people to bear your sufferings or to rejoice in the way that you're honored. Therefore, your elders have created an environment for that to happen on a more personal basis. Your home groups. We want all of you involved in a home group where you are prayed for, your burdens are borne. People know what you're rejoicing over. People know what you're suffering in. So we can really do this thing caring for each other. Are we going to find disagreements among us? Of course. And as Frank McGovern framed our discussion yesterday morning, he said the path to unity is acknowledging what we disagree over and working through those things and thereby bringing to pass what Paul prays for in Ephesians 4, being diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Of course we disagree. Let's work it through. That's the threat to the building, the cost of the building, the threat to the building. Thirdly, the appeal of the building. You know how some structures, uh, they sort of look unfriendly from the outside. They don't beckon you in. Other structures say, come in. You're welcome. You'll find rest here. About 40 or 50 years ago in America, 
people were saved through the front door of the church. Literally, they'd find a church building, they'd go in, and then they'd hear the gospel and get saved. It no longer works that way anymore. When you know you live and work with people in this area who have absolutely no interest in the church, they're never going into a church. It feels utterly irrelevant to them. Therefore, we, we, we're not going to plant ourselves in this location and expect unbelievers to come in through those doors. Instead, as we gather Sunday morning and scatter through those doors, we go to the places we work and live, and we begin to love people and listen to them and invite them into our homes and share a meal and drive their kids to soccer and maybe repair the fence in the backyard and take interest in their lives. And what might happen is they begin to ask you, what? What's different about the way you parent? What's different about the what I see in your relationship with your spouse? What's, what's different about you? And at that point, you might have a relationship where you could say, you know, the Saturday, uh, two Saturdays before Easter, we're having an egg hunt. Bring your little ones. It's going to be a neat event. Crafts, lots of candy. Bring your little ones. Or if they're struggling with English, come to ESL. Or if they love music, oh, there's a concert Saturday night. You're going to love it. Come on, I'll treat you. Maybe we'll go out to dinner beforehand. And they might get to the point where they'll join you through those front doors. If so, you're going to need to follow up with them and translate Christianity. There's nothing about Christianity that is intuitively appraised. It needs to be translated. It needs to be explained. And when they come in those doors, what are they going to experience among all of you? Do you think they'll see a welcoming atmosphere? I think, by and large, Wallace is that. But let me challenge you that when you come here Sunday morning, you come on a mission. I am going to make sure I greet face-to-face one person I don't know yet. I had an elder in my church that helped me start the church we planted in Lynchburg years ago. And every Sunday morning, you would see Dick Govers speaking to someone He'd also hand them Tim Keller CDs, which was great. Best preacher in the world, why not? But you'd see Dick talking to someone, and he'd be like this. He'd be writing their name and number. I mean, he got it. And if you had come to Redeemer between 2004 and 2011 in Lynchburg, and you'd met Dick Evers, he would have invited you to lunch afterwards just to get to know you, to make you feel welcome. Hello? How about the age of the building? The age of the building. You know that the church in Thessalonica was new, it was young. It hadn't been in existence very long. In spite of that, it was evident that the DNA of the heart of God was in the church. The heart of God is a heart of love and encouragement, and they had it. Back in chapter 4, we saw Paul write as to love of the brothers. You have no reason to, to be written to you. You practice these things. And then he says, but excel still more. And being a new church, it meant it had new leaders. They'd elected new elders. And it would have been tempting for some of the, in the congregation to be jealous of those leaders. Shoot, I didn't get nominated. To be disrespectful for one reason or another. To expect those leaders to do most of the ministry or to expect them to be sinless. And this is why Paul writes in verse 12, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, 
as a church leader, when I read that, what do I need to do? I need to search my heart and my conscience for how well I am modeling this. Is there a reason for you to respect me? Are there things from my life that need to be, that need to be killed that lead you to disrespect me? And I, need to, I, need, I can't demand that you esteem me. I need to focus on the work God has given me to do. Principally, as Andy prayed, did you hear Andy pray for the elders out of 1 Peter 5? Shepherd the flock. And Paul gives sort of the other side of the, if you summarize the work of the elders in in most broad terms, it is shepherding and then according to Ephesians 4.11, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Your elders' work, according to that verse, is to make sure the ministry of Wallace is yours. They're here to equip you, and that's one of the benefits of our congregational discussions. We're going to take to heart the things you tell us about the ways you need to be equipped. We've heard a pretty unified voice that you want more ways to be equipped. You want to know what the ministries are. Your elders are going to respond to that. Their work, as it were, is to equip you for ministry. Your work is to do the ministry. But it raises this question. If you're reading this and you go, okay, respect those who labor among you and over you in the Lord and admonish you, esteem them very highly and love because of their work, if, if you're a congregant, you're going to ask what question? What, what are some ways I can love my leaders, esteem them highly in love? How can you love them? I think the text answers it in almost, it's almost too simple. You love your leaders by one anothering. Go back into chapter 4. Paul has just finished talking about the second coming of Jesus. How does he end his teaching on the second coming in verse 18? Encourage one another with this. The ministry of one anothering isn't with the elders, it's with you. And then he teaches about the second coming again at the beginning of chapter 5. How does he end that in verse 11? Encourage one another, build up one another just as you were doing. Beloved, the greatest gift you can give your elders is to one another. Let's shift from the structure to the beautiful interior. You walk into this mansion called Christ Church. It's your home. What do you see? You see treasures, gorgeous oriental rugs, beautiful antique furniture with patina, potted plants, wall hangings, vases, paintings. What are these? They're your fellow believers. Who do they belong to? To whom do they belong? Jesus. We're in this mansion full of Jesus' treasures. What did he pay for them? Unimaginable torments of body and soul on the cross. What would it look like for you to view your brothers and sisters in the church as those for whom Jesus suffered unimaginable torments of body and soul on the cross? What would that move you to do? Care for them. Preserve them. Appreciate them. And let me suggest that this text then is giving you four specific graces that help you honor your brothers and sisters or flesh out what it looks like to one another. Here are the four graces. Peace, verse 13, 
live at peace with one another. Why does Paul need to tell the Thessalonians that? Couldn't we assume that in the New Testament church everything was just great? No, you can't assume that because the New Testament church, like the church in the 21st century, is full of what? Sinners. <laughs> Paul is admitting that relationships are hard, they're messy, and we have potential to hurt each other. And often we don't do relationship well, I think, because we're not operating with a full-orbed understanding of relationship. So if I'm right, allow me a minute or two to tease out how the Bible speaks about relationship. So that when you come in those doors, you have an understanding, biblically, of how relationships work. First of all, our relationships reflect the unity of God himself. In God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's an utter delighting in one another. God wants that reflected tangibly in flesh and blood on this earth in our relationships. And we are the only people on earth that can do that because it takes the Holy Spirit to bring this to pass. Second thing to say about relationships, we are all broken in some way from relationships. I'm broken because of the home I grew up in. So are you in some way. The fall has wrecked me as a man, and that's going to affect the way I do relationship, and because I know it's wrecked me, doesn't that move me to sympathy for other wrecked people that I run into in the, in the body of Christ? So you've got to ask yourself this question if you're going to do relationships well. How does your sin affect the way you relate to other people? More specifically, what do you crave most as a rule? Do you crave approval? Do you crave control? Or do you crave being right? That craving, you got to know that about yourself, or that craving will hurt your relationships. Third thing to say about relationships, they work best on humility. Years ago, I was given a push mower, a power mower, and it was the kind that worked where you, you have to mix oil with the gas and put it in the gas can. Somebody tell me later why they invented that. To me, that's just nuts. Because most lawnmowers just put gas in, you're good to go. Well, this was a lawnmower that required oil and gas. What's up with that? Anyway, I was tempted to shortcut it. Save some money. Just put gas in. That would have ruined that lawnmower. Because it was made to work with gas and oil. Relationships, beloved, are made to work with love and humility. It won't work with just love. You've got to have that ingredient. And humility starts in a relationship not with what I want out of it, but with what I deserve. What do I deserve in God's world? The wrath of God for my sins. I haven't received it, therefore I am a debtor to you. I owe you love. That's how Paul reasons it in, in uh, Romans 13. Owe nothing to anyone but love. Put your focus on someone else. So the question is, what, where in the world can this weak, frail, selfish heart, I'm fundamentally self-serving, more on that in a moment, what could possibly prime the pump of my heart to get my focus on your welfare ahead of mine? I must find a home in the heart of Jesus. And when the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 11 calls weary sinners to himself, he says, 
take my yoke upon me. 